Welcome to Austin Chapel Sunday morning gathering. Austin Chapel, we are all about what? Anybody know? <laughs> Jesus! Jesus is always the right answer, okay? <laughs> if you're not sure at church when you're being asked a question, just say Jesus. Uh, we are all about the glory of God. And as a body, um, as a church, we really glorify Him in two ways, and that's through Christ-centered community. We come together and we have Christ-centered community where we're there for each other. We, we are the body of Christ. We are His temple. And then by making disciples and, and letting everybody else know just how good Jesus is. And so that's why we do what we do. You know, as uh, Alan was singing that song about the heart of worship, you know, the heart of singing songs, but at the end of the day, we have to have the right heart for why we're doing what we do as a church plant. Uh, we have to have the right heart for why we gather together on Sundays, why we gather together at community groups, and why we go out into our workplaces, our, our social circles, and we tell people about Jesus and invite them in to experience the life-changing reality of the gospel. Amen? That's what we're all about. Today, we are starting a new series. Um, we're not doing announcements yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> they were in the wrong order. I know. It's not Aaron's fault. <laughs> uh, we are starting the book of Esther, which I'm really excited about, actually. Um, the book of Esther um, is one of only two books in the Bible with a women, woman's name for the title. You have Esther and you have Ruth. And it is a powerful book, but it is a strange book. Um, there is no other book in the Bible like the book of Esther. It's a historical book in nature. Um, in fact, it is much more historical in nature than any other book we have. Because the other books of the Bible, and what makes Esther so much different, is the other books of the Bible give us character motivation. We see God speaking. We see prophecies. We see prayers. We actually see none of that in the book of Esther. The book of Esther, the name of God is not mentioned. No one prays, no one prophesies, and we are given almost no character motivation. It is just simply a setting in which this story just tells us what happened. And we see these events played out in the book of Esther. Interestingly enough, uh, there are, even though the name of God is not mentioned, there are these encrypted... um, names of God in the text that you would see um, if you're reading it in Hebrew. They would highlight or darken certain letters that would show you the name of Yahweh. And really interesting about, the, about that is that it happens at crucial points in the story. And oftentimes Christians have not known what to do with the book of Esther. Famously, John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible but Esther. Um, in the first seven centuries of the church, there, were no, no, there are no known commentaries on the book of Esther for seven centuries. Martin Luther, who, he was Reformation, all that stuff, but he certainly had his flaws. He actually said he hated the book and wished it would never have been written. <laughs> and, uh, so it's a book that, the, honestly, the Christian church has, has misunderstood and not known what to do with it. In Luther's own words, he said it was just too ungodly, and he saw no point to the book being in the canon. Uh, it does appear at first glance to just simply be a Persian soap opera. <laughs> but it is not. Jews, however, actually love the book of Esther. 
And to them, it is actually one of the most important books. The book of Esther is where we, they get the festival of Purim, where they um, really celebrate the freedom that they have, where they were almost going to be completely wiped off the face of the planet. They, you will find out in the book of Esther that, that this evil guy, Haman, wanted to wipe them out. But Esther was put there by God to really save God's people. And so they love this book, and a whole festival came out of it. And the Jews really view it as a book to read and understand that God is always working behind the scenes, and not just in Jerusalem. In all parts of the world, in all nations, in all circumstances, God is there. Even if his name is not mentioned, even if people are not praying, even if people will not look to him for answers, God is in that moment working behind the scenes. And so the Jews celebrate it as a book to recognize that he is always taking care of his people and his providence is working throughout all nations and throughout all times. He is always there whether or not we recognize him as being there. And so it's actually a very powerful book. It's a book that if you're wondering sometimes, hey, God, are you working in my life? Like maybe you're in a moment, you're in a dry spot where you're just not feeling close to him. Maybe you're feeling distant from God. Maybe you're not sure what he's doing. You're confused by the circumstances you're in. You're like, I thought it was going to turn out this way, but it seems like it's going a different direction. I don't know what's going on. It's a book to read and know even when I don't hear from you, even when I don't know what's going on, you are there working behind the scenes which is a powerful message, one that we have to always remember, and that we can trust God to take care of us and to work all things ultimately for his glory and really for our good. At the end of the day, I mean, we're all going to be in heaven, and we're going to be with him, and we're going to see how his plan all perfectly played out. So we have to just trust that, and that's what the book of Esther is all about. So unlike some Christians throughout history, we don't want to misunderstand this book. We want to see it for the beauty um, that it has. What I want to do before we dive directly into Esther is I want to give us a little bit of a biblical timeline so you have a perspective of where Esther falls in line with the rest of Scripture. Aaron, will you bring up that slide here? So this is the simplest uh, timeline I could find. Most of them were way too much on the screen, and I, there's no way we would have been able to read it. And so what I have noticed is that the book of Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, most believers that I've talked to are very confused about where those play. And so I want to show you kind of the timeline and where they fall in Scripture and give us a better understanding of what's really going on before we even dive into the book of Esther. So you have creation. And then after creation, you have this kind of, they call it the universal history. It's Honestly, we have only about 11 chapters on about 2,000 years. From Adam to Abraham, we only have 11 chapters that cover 2,000 years. And in there, we have the flood, we have Noah, we have uh, Babel, we have the tower, the spreading of people. All of that happens in that period. And then God calls Abraham, and really, they call it the patriarch period. Um, This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll you'll hear those mentioned often in scripture. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, and that's because that's referring to the patriarch period. These are kind of the fathers of the Jewish faith. It's through Abraham's bloodline that the Jewish people came about. So we have that period, and then we get to this point where they became a large, really a a decent-sized nation, but through certain circumstances, they ended up enslaved in Egypt. 
And so we have the book of Exodus where Moses, he frees all of God's people. And they, then they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. And they finally enter the promised land. The land that was promised to Abraham for his people. And so even though they ended up in Egypt and they were in slavery, God really supernaturally through Moses and through all the signs and wonders he does, he brings them out, he brings them to the promised land, and then they have really what's like the conquest period where they take over that area of land and take back the promised land that God had given to them. And then we have this period called the period of Judges, and you can read that in the book of Judges, where they did not have a king, they were just tribes, and they had really judges that would oversee certain circumstances and things that were going on. And that book is crazy, if you want to read it. Uh, it is, is very crazy. And then we get to a, a certain point where Israel's monarchy begins. And uh, we see that they start to have kings beginning with Saul and David and Solomon and then a whole line of kings for a, a long time. During the reign of Solomon, the, Israel was a very powerful and rich nation. And then after Solomon, it slowly um, digressed and they, they really... Uh, decreased in power and in wealth, mostly, the Bible says, because of their continual sin. They weren't turning to him. These kings kept getting more and more evil. And then there comes this really important part here uh, where the, what we call the Babylonian exile. God kept saying, if you do not repent, I'm going to send this nation Babylon that will enslave you and will enslave you really for a period of 70 years. And we find all of this in the book of Daniel. So we have here, they went from a great nation in the promised land, but because of their sin, they're enslaved by Babylon. And then Daniel prophesies that Babylon will be defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire, which will be then become just the Persian Empire, which then will be defeated by the Greeks and then by the Romans. And it happened exactly as Daniel prophesied. So there's this Babylonian exile. And then the Persian Empire really rises to power. And we're going to talk a lot about them in a moment here. But they defeat the Babylon um, Empire. And what happens is King Cyrus the Great, this man who took Persia from, from a nobody nation to this great and powerful, the, actually it becomes the most powerful and largest ancient empire. He, he, pro, he really prophesied in Jeremiah that he would free the Israelites and let them go back to Jerusalem. So after the Babylonian ex- exile, Cyrus the Great frees the Jewish people to go back to their promised land and rebuild the temple. And so we have the book of Ezra where they begin building the temple again. And what we get to in <clears throat> Esther is that Esther takes place right after the temple had been completed. And so we are now four kings into the Persian Empire. And we're going to read about this guy named Xerxes. uh, And how really through Esther, she becomes the queen of Persia. Now, interesting enough, Esther is the main character, but we have a few other main characters. We have King Xerxes, who is um, the most powerful man in the world at this time. We have his wife, um, Vashti, and she... Uh, refuses him, as we'll read next week. She doesn't basically want to strip for him and his friends. And so she refuses him, and so he looks for a new queen, and that's how Esther is selected as the new queen. And then we have her uncle, Mordecai. 
We'll see. It really does play out as kind of a Persian soap opera. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It has a lot of plot twists. It has moments where it, things kind of flip on people's heads, and there's surprise, there's shock and awe. It really is a great book to read. I mean, if you read it, it it's fascinating. But what we see, the theme throughout, is that God is working behind the scenes. So that's where Esther um, falls in. So we're going to now dive in, and today we're actually only going to look at the first two verses of Esther. Um, We'll turn there, Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Asherus, the Asherus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over the 127 provinces... In those days, when King Asherus was sat on the throne in Susa, the citadel. We're going to stop there. So, this guy, that's his Persian name. Um, Historically, he's known by his Greek name, which was Xerxes. If you have seen the movie 300, which I don't recommend, uh, it's a lot of P90X buff dudes, right, (laughs) like walking around. It's extremely violent. It's really an immoral movie, but... The villain in that movie is this guy who's bald, has all these piercings, he's carried on this giant throne, and he, with his army of a million or to two million, defeats the 300 um, who were trying to defend Greece at the time. That dude is this guy. So if you've seen the movie 300 on his giant throne, like that was actually based on history. He would go to battle, and on this giant throne, where hundreds of guys would lift it up and carry him, and it was this this just very gaudy, very over-the-top throne. He was really the fourth king of the Persian Empire, but he, at the, in really his reign, it was when the Persian Empire reached its largest. And he had an army of, it, I mean, scholars have a hard time believing this, but, I mean, from all historical accounts, it was, it was somewhere in the two, that two million range, which is an insanely large army. And then he had 10,000 specially trained forces that guarded him at all times, called the Immortals, which uh, you can read some fascinating stuff about them. But they were 10,000, I mean, we're talking Navy SEAL-type trained guys who were just there to protect him and fight his battles really around him, protecting him. And so it's pretty interesting. Xerxes, uh, we find out, from history, was in his mid-30s at this time. He was known as the best-looking of all the Persian kings, because that's very uh, <laughs> very important to the text that we know that he was good-looking. Uh, he was very tall as well, so he was extremely tall, apparently, um, maybe seven foot or taller. Um, and at this time, you have to understand, he is the most powerful man on earth. This is... The Persian Empire, what they're ruling over is at that time known as the world. We're talking parts of southern Europe, basically all of the Middle East and northern Africa. This is where the world was. Um, People hadn't really not spread out that far. I mean, you look at historically, there was not much going on in the rest of the world. There were hardly any civilizations anywhere else in the world. So what you have to understand is he literally is running the world at this time. Now they have some fringe enemies like, you know, the Greeks were very small at the time and then here and there, but overall they are completely ruling the entire world. He is the most powerful man on earth. He is the richest man on earth and he views himself as God. He was worshipped as a God. Whatever he said 
whatever he decreed was taken as like divine word. So you have to understand how this man views himself, how the people view him, is that he is not just a king, he really is uh, divine to some extent. He sees himself as a God-man, he sees himself as the most important, most powerful person in the world. Um, There must have been a huge ego that came with that, demanding people to, to worship you whenever they came before your throne demanding that people um, follow everything you said as though it was the word of God. Apparently he had a very short temper and was known for executing people on the spot. If you didn't follow their exact rules, if you didn't bow at the right time, if you entered the room at the wrong time, uh, you would be executed. So he's a man to be feared. And what we find out is, we'll read more next week, but he throws this giant party in one of his two capitals, Susa, as we see here. Susa was the winter capital. I mean, this dude is so rich, he has two palaces, because this is in what we would know as modern-day Iran. So in Susa, it was so hot in the summer that they said um, if a lizard walked across the road, it would be dead by the time it got across. It was so hot there. So he has um, his winter palace, which is in Susa, which was very wonderful and great in the winter. And then he would have another palace he went to in the summer where it was cooler. But he's in this place, and they throw what we're going to find out next week is a six-month party. <laughs> for We're unsure of exact numbers, but we know that the Persians would throw parties for a month to six months, that would involve anywhere from 10,000 to 69,000 is the largest one we know of. 69,000 people partying, partying for months. Maybe in your past you've partied hard, but believe me, you have never partied this hard. <laughs> because none of us can afford that. <laughs> like, even if you wanted to, you don't have the money to just be drunk for six months, partying, eating the best food in the world. Like, this is what they would do, though. I mean, they were just an immoral uh, nation just filled with debauchery. Here's the thing that I want us to realize about Xerxes. is He is the king of the world at this time. And the Bible is clear that no ruler gets to power without God allowing it. Now, this is an evil man who worships, or has people worship him as God, but we have to understand that God is behind the scenes. It's easy for us to look at situations and look at history, even look at our own nation or, or other countries and go, God, how are you possibly working there? Right, we, we live in a nation that I believe we are very blessed in, in many, many ways. But even with the rulers we've had, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you have to realize none of them are as bad as Xerxes. And if you look around the world, our worst presidents are better than many, many leaders in the world right now. Many, many leaders in the world. We are extremely blessed, but even... Right now, we're looking at a situation going on in Esther about Iran. But think even now in Iran, they have very immoral leaders. In these parts of the world, I mean, we see crazy things going on. But here's what we have to know. 
that God is still working. And you don't know who God is putting in those scenes, whether it be a wife or a friend or, or someone is there, and God is always moving, and he's always protecting his people. And he's playing, we're going to see all these things play out for his good and for his glory. But, today I want to talk about kingdoms. In these first two verses, the obvious theme is that God is working even in the worst kingdoms. And he's working in all kingdoms throughout the whole earth. We, in our country, are really at a culture war. Um, doesn't take you long on social media to re- realize that, does it? Or even a few moments on the news to realize there is this battle of words. There is this battle of values going on. Um, to an extent that we haven't seen in a very long time in our country. We've always had people on both sides of the spectrum that have always disagreed, right? You can go look at our history. We've always had a two-party system where people disagree. But recently, in our nation, it has become, it's become a lot worse, and people are a lot more divisive. And so I want us to understand a couple things here. And what, the theme of Esther is God, the providence of God, and then secondly, the theme of Esther is how to live in an ungodly world. We have to trust God that he's taking care of things, and then secondly, learn how to live in an ungodly world. Even our best presidents, even the best rulers in the world are still sinners, and we will still, no matter what, live in sinful nations that do not follow God's word as they should. There's never been a nation throughout all of history that has done exactly as God wanted. Some maybe more than others, but even the Jewish nation never could really seem to follow God's law. In America, we've been blessed to have been founded by mostly Christians, and so we've had um, a nation that has had, in large part, a Christian culture. But even then, just look around you, and things are not as what you would think that God would want, are they? And that's because our leaders are sinners, and that's because we are sinners, right? We're sinners. Now, speaking of this divide in between um, Democrats and Republicans right now, I'm going to read you a couple quotes. One is of a conservative um, author writing about Democrats, and one is of a... Democrat author writing of Republicans. And I want you to see just how divisive and divided our country has become recently. These are very recent quotes. The first one says, The National Democratic Party is immoral to the core. Any American who would vote for Democrats is guilty of fostering the worst kind of degeneracy. The leaders of this party are severely out of touch with mainstream, traditional American values. They are crusaders for perversion, for licentiousness, for nihilism, and worse. Okay? Republicans don't believe in the imagination, partly because so few of them have one, but mostly because it gets in the way of their chosen work, which is to destroy the human race (laughs) and the planet. Human beings who have imaginations can see a recipe for disaster in the making. 
Republicans who, whose goal in life is to profit from disaster and who don't give a hoot about human beings either or in can't or won't. Do you see the divide? I mean, I, I know in our church we have a mix. We have Republicans, we have Democrats, we have Libertarians in our church. And I know that we all voted differently in our church, even in our community groups, even in very close friends of mine voted differently than I did. And what we see happening on social media, what we see happening in the news, is this, this hardcore divisiveness. This, you are wrong, and therefore I hate you, and, I hate, and you must be wrong about everything. And then vice versa, you look at the other side, like, no, you're wrong about everything. And we blame each other for the downfall of our nation. Both sides are going to ruin everything. Is that true? <laughs> when people ask me, um, I know during the elections I, I really didn't talk about um, it much from the pulpit because I didn't want to. <laughs> uh, but I remember when people would ask me what I thought, I'd say, well, I think both candidates aren't as bad as the other side wants us to think, and they're not as good as they want us to think, <laughs> you know? I do not think that Trump is as bad as everyone on the left is saying, and I do not believe that Hillary was as bad as the Republicans were saying. Now, I have certain things that are very important to me that really guide the way I vote, but I would not want to say, we disagree on this one thing, so I'm going to condemn you altogether. A mistake that we have made and has caused this culture war is we say, I disagree with you on these few points, and so I'm going to assume I disagree with you on everything, and I'm going to just choose to hate you. But we do that as, as human beings. Um, if you're driving your car, and somebody cuts you off, it's a bad day, you might decide that that person is probably the worst person on the planet. You'll say, this shows that they are selfish, selfish, that they are horrible beings who don't care about others. They're uncompassionate. They're um, dangerous. They're reckless. This person at his core must be the worst person on the planet. All because he cut me off in traffic. Have you ever been there? We can see one small action that we dislike and therefore decide to judge their entire um, life by it. We decide to condemn them completely. And that is in one very small, non-important thing. And we get to issues that are more important, and we decide that you must be the worst human being ever because you disagree with me. And both sides do this, and so we're at a culture war. And, I mean, if you, like, I followed the election probably too closely. <laughs> uh, I read, every day I read articles about it. Um, partially because I was concerned, partially because it was entertaining. <laughs> But what I noticed is, is in talking to people and reading things is that we are too quick to judge and to jump to conclusions. I was reading this study, um, and in this, it's called the Moral Foundations Project. And the project is really geared towards some kind of moral pluralism, finding um, morality that existed in all nations, all cultures, um, 
all religions, there must be some key elements that kind of existed everywhere. And I believe that's very possible because I believe that the Holy Spirit is working throughout all the world, convicting us of sin. And, and different, at different times, different people, different nations, we respond differently to that. But there are obviously certain things that we all see as right and wrong. But this study was geared more towards um, morality and a political nature. And then even more specifically to America looking at the right versus the left. And what was fascinating about it is what they found in, in most cultures, and especially within um, the politi- political realm of cultures and countries, they found five core found, uh, moral foundations that they found in all of them and then they find even in our country today. The five are uh, care, uh, Fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity or or, or purity. Um, People vote based upon these five things. And what this study also found is that here in our own country, um, both parties value all five of these things, but in in different um, priorities. And the divide is is not whether or not we all value these things, the divide is which ones we value more. So what they found is that Democrats value number one and number two more than Republicans do. But Republicans very much do believe that they want fairness and they want care, but Democrats value it more so than Republicans do. Whereas Republicans value loyalty, um, respect for authority, and sanctity or purity, some sort of religious purity that... Um, the Democrats also value, but not to the same extent. And this was across the board in, in, in all Democrats um, and Republicans that they um, tested. They all tested the way that they thought they would. They all tested valuing some of these more than others. Now, what happens is not that Republicans don't care for people or don't seek fairness. It's that they may seek those through the lens of loyalty. Right? So it's not that they don't care, but they want to care for their own first. Because they're viewing it through the lens of loyalty, where uh, Democrats may want to look at caring through the lens of fairness and see all treated the same at the same time. And so it's not that Republicans don't want fairness. It's not that Democrats um, don't want loyalty. It's that they view them in different ways or by different terms or through different lenses. What's really interesting is uh, they also found that both parties viewed the other side um, wrong. They would, so they would test them and say, what are your values? What are the values of a typical liberal? What are the values of a typical Republican? And they found that both assumed the other side was way more extreme than they actually were. Uh, Democrats believed that Republicans did not care about people, did not want fairness. And Republicans assumed that you know, Democrats cared nothing about purity or loyalty. But what they found is that they're actually closer together than you think. They value many of the same things, but they view them through different lenses or in different priorities. And so what I believe we have to do as a nation is start trying to understand each other instead of making assumptions about each other. Ask questions instead of make assumptions. I would challenge you to read different news outlets than you currently do. Right? If you always read Fox News and Breitbart, you might need to start reading you know, CNN and Huffington Post or something else you know, to get a different perspective. I've noticed in reading news 
articles is that most of the time the fake news is in the headline. You'll have the same content, the same story, but they deliver it at the headline in a different way. Did you look at all the facts? Most of the time it's the same stuff on CNN and Fox News, but the way they word their headline shows their bias, doesn't it? And so you can look at the same circumstance. I'll pick one that's not so touchy. Um, there's some that are obviously a, a lot harder to, to talk about, and, and I'm not ready to do that today. But we'll just pick, we'll just pick gun laws, okay? So you could, this is one that's not overly touchy, but we'll talk about it. So you look at gun laws. Democrats would say, you know, they, we have to have places where there are gun restrictions so that nobody can get in there and... and Shoot our kids, right? Well, they would say, well, they're going to do it anyway. The other side would say, they're going to do it anyway, so we need guns there to protect them. Both are doing so, or viewing the, really the policy the way they are out of care, but in a different light. So it's, so, but they will accuse each other, like, you don't care. You just want your gun rights more than you want to care for people or protect people. And they'll say, no, I'm trying to protect my family. I care for my family. I want to protect my family. That's why I have a gun. You see what I'm saying? And we do this with a lot of policies. Uh, there are certain ones that I would say we both sides completely, truly do disagree on and have nothing in common. But there are others, I would say the majority, where both sides are seeing a problem but have a different way to fix it because of their worldview or because of the moral foundations that they prioritize. And so as a church that really lives in this nation and has to work together despite our political differences. And then we have to reach people who have different political opinions than we do. We must learn to not judge people so quickly based upon how they voted and instead learn to try to understand them. And this issue, I mean, it's one that has been I think a huge problem, like, I don't know that there has been a, a election where people were more ashamed to say who they voted for, both sides. Um, if you're in certain friend groups, you just don't want to say it because you know that there's going to be certain assumptions. And when both sides just accuse each other of the worst of what they see and just lump it all on each other, Right? And we're seeing that right now. If you voted for Trump, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a sexist. And then you want to just lump that on everyone. Well, didn't Trump do some pretty immoral things, say some pretty immoral things? He certainly did. And I don't believe any Republican is going to defend the things that he said or some of the things he's done. However, they're prioritizing certain core moral foundations that maybe Democrats are not prioritizing. And so they say, these things are so important, I have to vote this way. Whereas Democrats would also say the same thing. Yeah, I know like Hillary's for like late-term abortions and, and this and that, but there are other issues that are really important, and I believe the Republicans aren't willing to recognize that there is uh, you know, a lot of unfairness or, or a lack of care going on, especially in poor areas. right? So that you view two things, um, and it's not that you agree with your party or your person completely, it's that you are prioritizing certain things above others, right? And so learning to understand each other versus um, assuming about each other. So I would challenge you, read different news outlets. And I would ask you, 
find a Democrat friend or a Republican friend who voted differently than you and have a very real conversation where you don't just assume an attack, right? Well, how could you do this? You didn't look. But ask them questions to see the heart of why they voted the way they did. But ultimately, we have to trust God with all of this because, like it or not, God puts all leaders in the place that they're in. And the Bible tells us to pray and respect them, to pray for them and respect them. And he says that even in the Old Testament when it was Xerxes, in the New Testament when it was some of these evil Caesars who were killing Christians, yet he says pray for them and respect the position. And we so quickly go, well, yeah, but he said some like things I really dislike, so I don't have to pray for him, I don't have to respect him. No, no, you do. You do. And he is a lot better than what we've seen in ancient history, and he's a lot better than what we even see in other parts of the world. So pray for our president and respect the position. Now, I know that generally speaking, more churches are Republican than they are Democrat, though that is not across the board. Um, and, I, and I do see the hypocrisy in it, right? When it was Obama, a lot of them just spoke against him, against him, against him and refused to see any good that he was doing because of certain moral foundational issues that they disagreed with, they would refuse to see anything good that he did do, anything good that God used him for, right? And then on the other side, you could do the same thing with Trump now, right? You could refuse to see any good that God is going to do through him because of certain immoral issues. I would challenge you, respect the position, but pray for the person. Pray that God would put someone in his life like Esther who would challenge and change the way things are going. I mean, you don't know who God could put in Trump's life. Pray for his salvation. Pray for people who who truly love Jesus to be put in his life and to guide him in decisions, to give him advice that maybe he's not getting elsewhere. Really pray for that. And yeah, I know that there are a lot of Christians who maybe didn't do that with Obama. You know what? You, you can't worry about that. We've got to pray for the current one. I mean, I prayed, I prayed a lot for Obama, and I'm praying a lot for Trump because that's very important to me to pray for leaders. Um, and I, I do. And when I prayed for Obama, it l- allowed me to see the good that he was doing beyond the things that I really disagreed with. And same thing with Trump. We can pray for him and start seeing the good things that God is using him for and not just the evil we disagree with. Amen? It's, it's easier to say than to do, and I recognize that. But ultimately, we have to recognize that God is in control. In Daniel uh, 2.20, and think about Daniel, you know, he's writing and he has Nebuchadnezzar who, I mean, the guy was crazy. I mean, they just killed people and, I mean, in disgusting ways. They were also full of debauchery. So understand, a lot worse than any leader you've ever lived under. Um, and Daniel writes, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He's seeing God's sovereignty and providence even in the worst of situations, even in, under the worst leaders. In Acts, they also write about this a couple different times. In Acts 2, it says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose, and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him 
to a cross, but God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Listen to what it's saying here. That wicked men, by their own free will, committed the worst act in history. They murdered the Son of God. By their own free will, yet God, in His sovereignty and His foreknowledge, was working in that to really bring about salvation for all of us. So even in the most evil moment of all history, the murdering of the Son of God, God was working behind the scenes to bring something that was for His glory and for our good. How powerful is that? So if God can work through literally the most evil thing that has ever happened to bring about the most amazing thing that has ever happened, how much more can He work through these other circumstances? How much more can he work through our president? How much more can he work through our nation and other nations throughout the world? In Acts 4, this is the believers um, praying. They're praying for boldness. And they, in their prayer, say this. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Listen, we're talking about leaders here who are literally conspiring against Jesus, the Holy One. Yet, they see God's sovereignty and providence in it. So ultimately, we have to trust God with our nation. We must pray. We must act, but ultimately, we have to just trust him. We just have to trust that he put this person in power for this time. Um, Melissa, this morning, she had a stomach bug um, kind of throughout the night. And so, this morning, I called Alan and asked him to lead. I called him at 8.30. The dude comes and sings and was awesome. Thank you, Alan, for stepping up. So... Uh, thank you. Um, but to add, to that, I mean, that was bad enough for Melissa. I don't know if everyone knows, but last week Melissa had um, a miscarriage, and uh, so she has been not feeling well. She has been extremely down. Um, you can pray for her if you want. Uh, but you know, this last Tuesday uh, she had the surgery um, to to remove the child. And um, obviously, I was worried, right? I know it's a common procedure. It doesn't make it not dangerous. There's still problems that can happen. Um, I was worried. I was, I was praying. Um, I was trying to comfort her, all those things. I was doing everything that I could. But there came a moment when the doctor took Melissa away and did what she had to do, right? And in that moment... I could do nothing. The only thing I can do is trust God and pray. Right? And so that's a very personal moment for me where I have to just trust the physician to do work that only the physician can do. I can pray. I can hope. I can comfort. But at a certain moment, there's nothing you can do, and all you can do is trust. And what we learn from the book of Esther is that in all circumstances, in every nation, in every part of the world, at some point, 
All we can do is trust. All we can do is trust. And the one thing that we can trust in is that Jesus is the better king and he has a better kingdom. No matter how awful things get. And trust me, they're not as bad as you think. We're going to learn that in Esther. Things were a lot worse for them, yet they trusted God, we find out. They trusted God and God works at the right times in the right ways and he protects his people. And so at the end of the day, we have to trust God in this physical world, in this physical kingdom. But we know that our hope is in our true king and in our true kingdom. And one day, we are going to be with him for all of eternity. How awesome is that? He will be our ruler. He will be our king. And it will be perfect. There will never again be sin. There will never again be harm. There will never again be sorrow or pain. There will never again be a culture war. There will never again be all of the awful things that we read throughout history. It will be perfect because we will have a perfect king and we will be his redeemed people. And I am excited for that day. And I'm going to trust God with this day because I know ultimately I'm going to be living in that day. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for everything that you have done. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to how you're working. That we would just learn to trust you to work through all circumstances. No matter how painful they are or how bad they get, we know that you're behind all, working all things for your glory and good, no matter how evil the world um, decides to be, Lord. Um, God, I pray that we would learn to, like Christ, treat others with respect, to um, try to understand others instead of so quickly judging them and condemning them. What do you say? Judge and you will be judged, condemned, and you will be condemned, Lord. That is what is going on in our country. It's a lot of judging and condemning. But you say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall receive peace. Lord, would we learn to, because we trust you, be peacemakers, to really be the ones who set an example of unity and of asking questions instead of making assumptions. But that we would also stand for what your scripture says. That as we seek to understand others and and to strive for unity, we would also continue to stand on your word and what you say is most important. God, I, I pray for our nation. Lord, we trust that you are doing things. Lord, I pray that we would all learn to trust you with that and that we would pray for our leaders and that you would do amazing things through our nation, God. That you would continue to use this country to reach other parts of the world with the gospel. Lord, that we would count our blessings and thank you for them and trust you with the things that we don't like. Trust you with the things that don't go the way we would want them to. 
In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen.